0: a wakeful mind as we contemplate your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, this is Revelation chapter 16. Um, We're at the end of this middle section of the book of Revelation that begins with, uh, so so you see on the page here, uh, there's a little bold line that says, Where are we in the book? What's going on? Okay, uh, let, me show, let me point your attention to that little couple of lines there. The divine retribution revealed by the seals in chapter 6 and announced by the trumpets in chapter 8 is now fully executed by the bowls that, <clears throat> that were introduced for us in this very majestic, prelude of chapter 15 and and now specifically in chapter 16 that's what we're looking at revelation 16 talks about the bowls of god's wrath uh i have more sheets up here if anybody lynn do you need you know you probably don't need 25 but okay uh let's see now uh here's another reminder I, I know the way my mind works. It, it may be the way your mind works. As we read this book, we need to constantly remind ourselves, oh, yes, 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 I'm reading apocalyptic. You may want to even say that in your mind, apocalyptic. I know it's a strange word. It's not a word you normally use. You don't see apocalyptic literature on the Chick-fil-A menu in drive-thru. Uh, It's pretty rare, okay? Uh, Not so much rare in the world of the Bible, uh, but rare in our world. Apocalyptic literature is showing us our life from God's perspective, and it is doing so in a shocking way, a cosmic way, designed to capture our attention designed to remind us, again, from God's perspective, if you're looking at things from God's perspective, you're looking at it from omnipotent, eternal perspective. You're looking at it from a sovereign perspective. We love to talk around here about the fact that God is Lord over every single molecule. He is, he is he's absolutely in control, and that's difficult for us. It's hard to get our brains around that fact, uh, but but that's the case. So this this language, when it talks about the earth earthquakes blowing, you know, and stuff happening in this cosmic perspective, it, you, you, you're, you're being exposed to God as He has revealed Himself. And that is to create or elicit worship and humility and trust. There's a guy in my office right now that was giving me, you know, four or five things that make it difficult for him to trust God. I say to him, faith is highly overrated. We love talking about it. Christians love talking about faith. We're saved by faith. We walk by faith and not by sight. Faith is good. Faith is great for bumper stickers. But when we have to personally exercise faith, when we don't have any other props, we love talking about faith and how God has blessed me when we're in our big homes with our big bank accounts and our perfect families where nothing is out of, out of you know, nothing's not out of control. But when everything's out of control, when we know we're not in control and wish we were, and all we have is this, Lord, it's your death, burial, and resurrection. It's about all I have to trust. When you're in that situation, that is often not fun. And it's often scary. Uh, this book and this literature is designed to build those muscles of trusting God. Okay? All right. Uh, so, all that to elaborate this line here. The, the visions, that even in chapter 16, are intended to confront readers with vivid portrayals of eschatological truth rather than to supply them with the data for a precise chronology of the consummation or how things are going to end. If you're not careful, you will read this and and your brain will go to merely when is this going to happen and how is it going to happen and what are we seeing in our world now or in our news now that, that lines up with how things are going to end. That's really not primarily what this book is given for. Maybe not at all, Uh, which is not to say there isn't a future because there is. Christ is coming back, okay? We have an eternal destiny and we're heading inexorably there. But in terms of, you know, this elaborate portrayal of how world events or how the book of Revelation is explaining world events and we know now what's happening and nobody else... That's not not what's happening here. This book is a theological psychology. It is telling us truth about our lives from God's perspective so that we can trust Him, so that we can have joy in spite of our circumstances, and so that we can lean in and be free and clear and bold to rest in exclusively on the gospel of Jesus Christ and him crucified in a day where people scoff at that, in a day where people may push back at us for that. Uh, We're to be witnesses, faithful witnesses, even when, and and maybe you've seen this, I've seen it twice this week, I don't want to exaggerate, but two times this week, Uh, I I picture like scary movies, you know, where a little doll is a sweet, innocent doll, but then all of a sudden, you know, like fangs come out or whatever, and it bites you or whatever. You know, people, particularly unredeemed people, sometimes speak the language of the dragon. And the fangs come out. Or sometimes you're talking with somebody, trying to give truth, and they're blind to it. And you sense the, the serpent has entwined and entangled them, and they don't even know it. Uh, This book is designed to help us stand firm in situations like that. Okay, that's enough maybe uh, uh, introduction. There are some other things to say about introduction here. Uh, A couple of you may have bought this little bitty book uh, by a guy named Alec Matir on the Old Testament. Did anybody in here buy that book on the Old Testament? have you cracked it yet? Have you? I, as I have too, and uh, it is really good. And one of the things, this is a man who loves Jesus Christ. He's an Old Testament scholar, has been all his life. He's in his 90s now, 90s. So, you know, if he were in this class, you'd say, man, I don't want to be in this class. It's full of old people. You know, he, that's how old he is. And he wrote this book about the Old Testament. And what he's saying is this, you can't understand the New Testament without it. That is more true of the book of Revelation than any other book of the Bible. I'm convinced of that now, having waded through now 16 chapters with you uh, in it. So again, all of the book of Revelation is uh, informed by the Old Testament. This is a litmus test. The book of Revelation is a litmus test on your own Bible literacy, your Old Testament literacy. Now, I'm in the process of developing uh, a reading guide for the Old Testament, and you'll be among the first to get it. I'll give it give it to you free, uh, designed to help help us. So there are connections here with the Old Testament. Two or three significant ones, and I 'll just maybe mention the one of them. Uh, this chapter is seven bowls of god's wrath that get poured out, bowls getting poured out now that that action of pouring out a bowl might remind you of the book of Leviticus when a priest was making a sacrifice. And would pour blood out. Okay. That is an image that might come into your mind. It would be appropriate for you to have that. Uh, Another image that you might have in the back of your mind. uh, Would be Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. When he says. You remember what he said. What his prayer was. Let this cup pass from me. What cup? The cup of the wrath of God that he makes people drink and become drunk with to punish them for their sins. You you might have that image in your mind. Uh, The third and final image that you may want to have in your mind uh, are the plagues of Egypt. I went back and read that. Uh, I would recommend you do that if, if you want to appreciate this chapter more. Exodus chapter 7 through 9, where Moses... Uh, comes to redeem God's people, Israel, who were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt. And in the process of redeeming His people, God shows the world who He is. That there's nobody else like Him. And the way He does that, the way He reveals His incomparability to allude to a book that was written about God in the Old Testament, the incomparability of God. What does that mean? You can't compare Him to anybody. There's nobody like Him. The way He shows that, that He's the one and only God, is basically by just annihilating all the gods of Egypt by showing his control over all the things that the pagan idolatrous Egyptian religion thought they had control over. The sun, the waters of the Nile, uh, the fields and the land of agriculture, etc. All right. Those things are happening here in the book of uh, Revelation chapter 16. As we read about these bowls of wrath being poured out uh, on the world, Uh, not literally, not literally, symbolically, all right? These are symbols, but the truth behind the symbol is that God is sovereign, He's in control, and uh, uh, things are happening exactly the way He wants them to happen. Now, uh, do you see the little phrase that says an overview of Revelation 16? You see that on your notes, overview of 16? Okay, look at the paragraph immediately before that one where we read this was helpful to me, I think it might be helpful to you. The preceding chapters envisioned the rise of the dragon, chapter 12, followed by the beast, chapter 13, the false prophet, the beast from the sea, chapter 13. Uh, and finally, Babylon in chapter 14, All right, in, in, the, in the argument of the book of Revelation. Uh, the dragon, the two beasts, chapter 13, and finally Babylon come, come up. I'm picturing a giant Ferris wheel. Have you been to a Navy Pier in Chicago? You been there, Judy? You been on a giant Ferris wheel? Which one? New Jersey. Okay. Uh, anybody been to the Ferris wheel in London? I don't know what they call that. There's a giant one in London. I haven't been there either. You know what a Ferris wheel? Uh, you, you get in the car on the bottom, and then slowly you go up, 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 and then slowly you go down, down, down. Now, you want to go down because you're scared to be way up there. That's what's happening to all these powers in the book of Revelation. They rise up the dragon, the beast, the false prophet, Babylon, they rise up, they become very, very powerful. And now we're in this tipping point where they're all going down, okay? all. What's that nursery rhyme? Ashes, ashes, they all fall down, all right? And they came up, and they're going to fall down. We're going to see them do that. Okay, Revelation 16. I just want you to hear the text. Uh, seven bowls of God God's wrath being poured out. We're mindful of the introduction of chapter 15. Uh, you can see some of these other Bible verses here that, uh, uh, that, that, that are uh, being alluded to in this chapter. John is writing this. He's on Patmos. He has this vision on a Sunday afternoon. And he says, I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. Now, that voice from the temple is designed to remind us in our minds to go back to chapter 4. After those messages to those seven churches that the ascended Christ gives, John says, I saw a door open into heaven. Remember that? And there's one seated on a throne. This is connected to that. It's It's a voice from the temple, all right, where God is in heaven. Okay, pour out the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went... And poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshiped its image. You can go back to chapter 13, chapter 14, uh, even chapter 15, and, and realize that uh, all, all those beast worshipers, well, now God's wrath is being poured out on them. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, maybe coagulated, uh, maybe congealing. And every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you. O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun. And it was allowed to scorch people with fire. and They were scorched by the fierce heat. Maybe this is a prelude of the lake of fire. And they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. Just like He had power over the plagues of Egypt. And they did not repent. And give him glory. You may want to underline that. You may want to note that. This is the response of the people who are, who, God's wrath is being poured out on them. Here's how they're responding they're not repenting. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom, like Egypt, was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish. And as their tongues began to swell, they cursed with their tongues the God of heaven for their pain and sores. Once again, we are told, they did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast, And out of the mouth of the false prophet, go back to 13, three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. And now out of the blue, we're interrupted almost like a special news alert from Jesus Christ himself. Look at verse 15. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. Back to the story. They assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. It's the only place in the Bible that word is used. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. What, what is done? The wrath of God has been completely poured out. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, just like we heard in chapter four when we saw the throne and a great earthquake such as there had never been. Since man was on the earth, so great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away. It's apocalyptic literature. And no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. All right, that's Revelation chapter 16. Now, if you'll turn uh, to the back side of this piece of paper, I have a couple of kind of lessons uh, or reflections based on what we have read here. I said this last week. Uh, Leon Morris said it this way. If there is no wrath, there is no salvation. Now, uh, so this is apocalyptic literature. I think that uh, much of this is symbolic, much if not all of it. Certainly these bowls are symbolic. that There weren't real angels with real bowls pouring something real out in the sky where people could have seen them. This is symbolic, but these symbols that are used are connected with things that people living in those seven churches in Asia would understand, like earthquakes, for example. They had had earthquakes, terrible, really bad, severe earthquakes. Uh, So, the language wasn't lost on them. Uh, All right, so I have four or five points here, and I just want to emphasize maybe two or three of them. The first point that I would like to talk about is the uh, wrath of God, God's just wrath. Uh, In the chapter, uh, right after the third bowl uh, turns the rivers and springs and waters into blood, we, we hear this Chorus we hear this uh anthem, if you will, to God, and and you hopefully you can see it there in your text uh, God uh, who is referred to as the Holy One, who is and who was and and you know there 's a third part to that you 've heard it in the book of revelation, the one who was and is and is to come, okay well here we 're Not so much told that He is to come, but we're reminded that He is and that He was because His his wrath has come and He's referred to as the Holy One. We're told that He's the one. I'm looking at verse 5. He's the one that brought these judgments. And the reason He did it was not arbitrary. It wasn't fickle. It wasn't superficial. It was just. Do you know why it was just? Does, does anybody want to hazard a guess based on what you've read so far in the book of Revelation about why the wrath of God being poured out on the beast worshipers, on those that didn't follow Christ, anybody want to know why that was just wrath? It was deserved. All right, so why was it deserved? They were Well, they were unrepentant. I'm sorry, Dennis? They were rebelling against God. Uh, And maybe you're assuming this, but nobody's mentioned it yet. They were persecuting the church. Do you remember in, uh, uh, I think it was chapter 6, under the altar, the blood of the martyrs was ascending like incense into the presence of God. How long, O Lord, before you avenge our blood? We're we're just followers of Jesus. We're doing what you told us to do, which is to tell people about Jesus. And guess what? Because the devil has been kicked out of heaven and he really is here in this earth inhabiting and deceiving real people in real places who are doing really bad things to Christians, including chopping their heads off, imprisoning them, oppressing them. Only because... Of their love for Jesus Christ, uh, so this is this wrath that is coming down on those people is appropriate. It's just. It is not unjust. Okay. Uh, so, uh, God's wrath is just, and and the altar in, in heaven says, "Yes, Lord God, the Almighty." And I that that word I've talked about it before. The word Almighty means He is the leader of everything, okay? He's the leader of every. He's, he's a sovereign of everything. He says, your judgments are true and just. Uh, uh, one guy says, I'm, I'm reading this note here, uh, Santa Claus theology, Santa Claus theology, viewing God as an old, Cheerful, you know, guy in a rocking chair, Uh, you know, in the end, it's all going to be fine. Santa Claus theology cannot cope with the reality of evil. There's real evil in the world. Uh, Not to mention the seemingly senseless sufferings. People all over the world are suffering affliction. That's not the way it's supposed to be. It's not the way it's going to be. So to make God kind but never firm is to deny His omnipotence and lordship over a world full of sufferings. Facing such hardships without assurance that God has a purpose in them leads to fatalism. All right, so you're, you're experiencing affliction. You are seeing uh, brokenness. You may at times be the recipient, I don't know how to say it, of pushback because of your own faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus says, I I came to bring a sword. I came to set people against each other. Uh, Sometimes your following Jesus Christ will put you in direct conflict with other people. Now, what what do you do when you're in that kind of conflict? Do you respond sinfully or do you respond lovingly? Do you respond like Christ or do you give it right back to them when you're trying to be around people redemptively and speak truth into circumstances and situations? So you, you, you can do that in a, in a sinful way that speaks the truth. I'm telling you the way it is. Okay, you get out the big, you know, cut off an arm or a leg. That's okay. It's worth it because I'm speaking the truth. But we're told to speak the truth in love, which is to say many times you have to just take stuff. You have to let them crucify you for Christ's sake and respond in love or maybe not respond at all, at, at all. And I don't know about you, but that feels like dying when you do that. And you say, Okay, here, here I am, Lord. You got my back, right? You got me, right? I got you, so you can endure that. So, so you choose to respond in a godly way, knowing that there's a, may a maybe even a price to be paid, because you know that your Savior did the same thing, and because you know. God knows what's happening here. And all the oppression, all the injustice, all the genuine wicked evil, one day, according to this, is going to be dealt with by God. That's what this is saying, that one day this is all going to be dealt with. Meanwhile, this is my personal opinion now, so I'm going to step off the scriptural path and just talk about my personal opinion we see a lot of kind of wacky responses to stuff that ends up, in my opinion, being somewhat superficial. Uh, So a lot of these controversies and a a lot of the world's quest for justice ends up being warped and, and twisted and ultimately superficial. So, you know, be careful as you respond to cultural issues, Confederate battle flag, statues of Confederate heroes, you know, people, and be careful that you respond not in a way where you're going to wade right in there and you're going to show them and uh, you're going to take this country back. Okay, there's maybe a place for that, but there's also maybe an opportunity to talk about Christ and his eternal kingdom. Maybe there's a an opportunity to talk to somebody about their own eternal soul redemptively uh, to to share the gospel. So uh, those are opportunities that that we may have. Okay, now here's the most important thing that I, I think should be said in this whole thing. This chapter is about God pouring out his wrath. And did you notice, you did, that this wrath is being poured out on Not believers. Do do you see it in verse 2? Harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. This wrath is being poured out on unbelievers. This wrath is being poured out on those who are outside of Christ. Those who are not the people of God. Uh, The only reason that doesn't need to terrify you is because you are part of the people of God. If you are, and I don't know your hearts here this morning. The only difference between those who are God's people and these people who are facing the terrifying wrath of God uh, that's going to end, and we'll see where it's going to end. You know what the only difference is, right? That somebody else took his wrath in your place. That's the only reason. It's not because you're any better. It's not because you're American. It's not because you're patriotic. It's not because your uncle was a Sunday school teacher or Methodist minister. It is only because God himself, in sacrificial love, gave himself and his son Jesus, and he poured all of that just, holy, righteous wrath that you deserve. And you've confirmed that every day of your life through your own personal sin. He poured that wrath on his son so that his son could bear that wrath and you could go free. Uh, in, in Bible school uh, with the boys, I was saying, all right, this this represents sin. It's black. It's big. It's heavy. It represents sin. Here's you, okay? This is your sin. That's a, you, you can go with me here. I know it's a Bible, but... Uh, So when God looks at you, what does He see? He sees your sin. Now on the cross, God sends a real life human being, a person, fully God and fully man. Jesus comes and He dies on the cross. And on the cross, God places your sin on Christ. So that when He looks at His Son, He sees all of your sin. And Jesus, bearing that weight, calls out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God turns his back on his own son in wrath. Because he's poured out his holy wrath of, of your sin on his son. Now, as a result, when he sees you, what does he see? He sees the very righteousness of his son because... By dying, His Son put our sins away. And so in Christ, we don't fear His wrath. We don't fear His punishment because it was poured out on His Son. Uh, That is designed, friends, to be so deeply entrenched in your mind and your heart that you find yourself uh, loving, serving, wanting to know, wanting to live for, uh, this, this sovereign God who could have consumed you, but consumed his son instead. Uh, that doctrine of God satisfying his wrath by pouring it on his son instead of you, that's called propitiation. That's satisfying the, the demands of a God on a world uh, that, that he would have righteous wrath on. That wrath has been satisfied because somebody died in your place now you and I know there's a lot of things in this world that are deeply wrong and actually they're more deeply wrong than you realize because you don't see things as deeply as God does really wrong you don't know half of it you don't know half of the bad stuff that's represented in this room All all these things we're all concerned about that aren't the way they're supposed to be. God sees it all. He sees it all. And one day, His wrath is going to be poured out. Now, uh, did you see how these people responded? Yeah, not good. They did not repent. Do you see the potency and the darkness and the blindness of sin? How can people be so blind to their own sin? It's, it's, you, you, you can't deal with sin on your own. You can't just decide to turn over a new leaf or live your best life now on your own. You can't do that. It's humanly impossible because this is a spiritual dynamic. Only God can do this. And so I offer you at the bottom of the page, I won't go into it. We're going to stop uh, lest you begin lamenting with the saints, how long, oh Lord, how long? <laughs> uh, I offer you this paragraph from an excellent book by a former lesbian who was converted by the grace of God, and she's coming here to speak in February, uh, Rosaria Champagne Butterfield. She talks about repentance. Repentance. She talks about it being a gift. She talks about repentance not being some one-time gift thing that you do to get God off your back once so you know you're going to heaven not going to hell but you don't ever repent she says no it's a fruit of the spirit that's that's probably overstated she didn't say it that way but friends we need to have this teachable humble mental emotional disposition to say you're in control I am not you were right I am not You are worthy, I am not. Your will, not mine. May he increase, may I decrease. That humble, contrite, needy, thirsty, hungry appetite for the righteousness of God in Christ, friends, is what we need, all of us. All of us is what we need. Because without that, we puff ourselves up, and, and are not terribly fun to be around at times. So may this chapter uh, give us compassion for people that don't, don't know Christ. This is their future. Your future is with Him. You're safe. We need to have compassion and preach this message. It's the only way people are going to turn from gnawing their tongues to, to praising God. The only way they can repent is, is by the mercy of God in Christ. So this is the message that we have, that God sent his son uh, to take our place. And it's through faith in him that we can be saved. Let's close in prayer. Lord, uh, thank you for this chapter. Thank you for what this teaches us about you. Uh, when you're in contact with sin, uh, something's got to give and it's never going to be you. Uh, We thank you for this reminder that people that are living in darkness who have not been transferred to the kingdom of your beloved son are bound in slavery to sin that is going to crush them forever. And the only way, only way they can be delivered is through the truth of the foolish gospel uh, of Jesus Christ crucified and faith in him and him alone. Uh, Lord, we thank you that we too, Lord, can praise you uh, that evil is going to be eradicated one day, once for all. In the meantime, Father, may you find us faithful. May you find us praising you. May you find us persevering uh, uh, with compassion for those around us. In Jesus' name, amen.